0: You would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter 9. It would be a difficult thing to do to overstate the significance of this portion of Isaiah in developing the sense of expectation in the hearts of the people of God and the buildup to the birth of Jesus Christ. In other words, for those who would receive the birth of Jesus with gladness in their heart, much of their expectation was rooted in the prophecy of Isaiah. There have been a couple of times in, in my life that I have had the opportunity to see and to spend a little time with the scroll of Isaiah, if you're not familiar with the scroll of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah was found in the caves outside of Qumran, Israel. The scroll itself dates back to about 300 BC, about 300 years before the birth of Jesus. So it's a 23, 24 hundred year old scroll. The scroll contains all of the 66 book uh, chapters rather, of Isaiah. Unchanged, without emendation, without any editorial insertion or removal of text. Isaiah, as we have it today, is verified as unchanged as far back as 2,300 years. Now, when you're reading Old Testament passages, it is a reasonable thing to ask how much does the divinely inspired author know? of the Christ who is to come at this moment in history. How much does Abraham understand of the promise of a Messiah who would come? How much does Moses understand of the promise of a Messiah who would come? And as you're reading through your Bible, the level of understanding, the depth of insight, the clarity of focus with regards to the Messiah, is, is being increased, it's being improved upon, it's being sharpened. There is a progress whereby God is revealing the promise of the Messiah. From the very beginning of the Bible, there is a growth in understanding that is unfolding. But by the time we come to the prophecy of Isaiah, a great deal of the life and ministry of the Messiah, the Christ who would bear our sin on the cross, be raised again on the third day, satisfying the wrath of God against our sin. So much of the life and ministry and even the death and resurrection of Jesus is brought into clear focus in the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now from time to time, I'll hear someone grab at an Old Testament prophecy and point to its fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus, maybe even a gospel passage, and I might go, yeah, that's maybe a little bit of a generalization. I could see some ways that that might be connected differently. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate, and, and I can hear the inner voice of the skeptic saying, yeah, but in this broad, overly generalized way, you could connect that in different ways. But the precision with which Isaiah speaks of the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus is simply unmistakable. I don't really need at this point in my walk with Jesus verification or validation of the truth of the gospel. I have what I need by faith in Jesus And am quite confident in the message of the gospel. But I just got to tell you, when you begin to see what God said 700 years before he did it, and how Christ serves to be the yes and amen to the promises of God, it does stir the heart. So I hope this morning, as we study this passage together, to set you on the edge of your seats with anticipation at what is gloriously revealed in the seven verses now before us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. The Bible says here, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he'll bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. The trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father prince of peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. It might be a difficult thing to appreciate the setting established for us in verse 1 without backing up into chapters 7 and 8. Isaiah chapters 7 through 12 are typically regarded as a unit within the broader book of Isaiah. Those are good boundaries to set. Isaiah 7 through 12 ordinarily is communicating within itself. The means of communication within this section of Isaiah are consistent throughout. There is an intentional effort on the part of God and intentional effort on the part of Isaiah to put before the people a prophecy which has an immediate fulfillment and a far future fulfillment ultimately revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 1. The Bible says here, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Isaiah has reference here to the former times, times which are not so distant in the rear view mirror of the people of Israel. Back in Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz is ruling on the throne of Judah. He is a king in the line of David, but he is not a good king. And Ahaz, like other world leaders in the ancient Near East, is reckoning with the reality of a growing Assyrian empire that serves as a direct threat to the well-being of the people of Judah. In fact, it's not just the southern kingdom, Judah, but the northern kingdom as well is in dire straits as a result of this growing Assyrian military. Already Zebulun and Naphtali to the north and to the west of the Sea of Galilee in the far north of the Promised Land have fallen to the power of the Assyrian Empire. They are encroaching upon the northern kingdom and inching closer all the time to the southern kingdom. Ahaz is afraid Ahaz fears that Assyria will eventually come and conquer the city of Jerusalem, overthrowing the southern kingdom of Judah. And instead of believing God, he seeks to create an alliance with the Assyrians, effectively throwing in his lot in opposition to the northern kingdom, which is Israel. Now in Isaiah chapter 7, God is inviting Ahaz to trust him, to believe to have faith, that God would protect his people. He's effectively saying Ahaz, just believe, just have faith. In fact, he warns, if you don't stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. And he invites Ahaz, this king of Judah, to test him. Just try me. There's a British scholar who's a really superb scholar named Alec Mateer who suggests that there's a Gideon motif about Isaiah chapter 7 through 12. Gideon fought and secured the protection and the redemption of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Gideon was invited to test the Lord through the putting out of a fleece. I'm going to put it out, Lord, you make the fleece wet. And he goes through this process of seeking a sign from the Lord that indeed, God would be with him if he, an otherwise cowardly man, would lead the people of Israel out in battle. And God attests once and twice and the third time that indeed God would be with Gideon. And so Gideon goes out, and by the power of the Lord, the victory is secured. In like manner, Ahaz is invited to test the Lord. Try me, God says, just. Try me. Again and again, the Lord presses Ahaz that he would test him. God desires to verify for Ahaz that he need not rely upon an alliance with the Assyrians, but that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is trustworthy and he is faithful. In Isaiah 7.10, the Bible says the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. But Ahaz replied, I'll not ask, I will not test the Lord. And Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Now listen, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. The very verse that Matthew would quote in Matthew chapter one with regards to Jesus. The Lord will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. But by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he'll be eating butter and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you your people and the house of your father, such a time as has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria, is coming. Now here the promise is that a child is going to be born as the signal to you Ahaz that everything's going to be okay. That God is going to protect his People. Verse 18 says, On that day the Lord will whistle to the fly that's in the farthest streams of the Nile, and to the bee that's in the land of Assyria. All of them will come and settle in the steep ravines, in the clefts of the rock, and all the thorn bushes, and in all the water holes. On that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave the head, the hair on the legs, and to remove the beard as well. On that day a man will raise a young cow and two sheep. And from the abundant milk they give, he'll eat butter, for every survivor in the land will eat butter and honey. And on that day, every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of silver will become thorns and briars. A man will go there and with bow and arrows because the whole land will be thorns and briars. You'll not go to all the hills that were once filled with a hoe, uh, once tilled with a hoe rather, for fear of the thorns and briars, those hills will be places for oxen to graze and for sheep to trample. This child would be born as a testament that God is in control, that he is in charge, that he would do what he said he would do. Now, most of the time, if you go back to verse 14, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. In, mo- in many of your translations, the passage will simply read, the maiden will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now be careful to hear what I do say and not what I do not say. The best translation in my estimation is maiden here, and most of the time the virgin translation is used because we have the insight added by Matthew's gospel with reference to the Virgin Mary. We know what we know of the virgin birth of Jesus, not because of Isaiah's contribution, but because of Matthew's contribution to the teaching of the Bible. This is a prophecy with a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. Like the passage we looked at last week in 2 Samuel 7, where David is promised a son that would rule on the throne of Israel forever, the immediate fulfillment was Solomon, but the far future fulfillment found its yes and amen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The far future fulfillment, we already know. We have the insight that Matthew provides us with in Matthew chapter 1. Indeed, the virgin did conceive and bear a son. And indeed, we will call him, and we have called him, Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. But you're already too far in the story. I need you to back up with me and sense this growing anticipation that's unfolding in our passage. Chapter 8 tells us of the short-term fulfillment of that prophecy. Chapter 8 in verse 1, the Lord said to me, take a large piece of parchment, write on it with an ordinary pen, maher shalau hashbaz. I have appointed trustworthy witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Je- Jeberiah And I was then Intimate, Isaiah speaking of himself, I was then intimate with the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to call out father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. Now, if you're with child and you're looking for baby names. Let me suggest to you I have one that no one else is using. Now that's a mouthful, maher shalau hashbaz, but here's what it means. It means rush to the plunder. It means that your enemy will be invaded, you will be granted access to all of the plunder of victory on the field of battle. In other words, God will defeat your enemies on your behalf. You will rush out to the fields, to gather what until then had belonged to them, hurry to the spoil is what Maher Shalal Hashbaz means, and I'm submitting to you this morning that the birth of Isaiah's son, rush to the plunder, is the short-term fulfillment of the promise. Of Isaiah seven fourteen, the maiden will give birth to a son, and his birth will be a testament to the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. He will do what he said he would do. Now, I want you to feel the rising tension in our passage. God gave this prophecy. Now, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in the remainder of chapter eight. But something interesting happens in verse 18. Isaiah says, Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, Consult the spirits of the dead and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people consult with their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they're famished, they'll become enraged, and looking upward, will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they'll be driven into thick darkness. This is where Isaiah 9 lands in the context of this section of Isaiah. Now, it's probably not appreciated yet, but in verse 18, if you can just put yourself in the sandals of one who is hearing the prophecy of Isaiah. You have the prophecy that a maiden will give birth to a son, and that son will be a sign for us, and then that son seems to be born, and that's the indication for us. And then Isaiah says, as though to set up what comes in chapter nine, that these children are signs foreshadowing something greater that is to come. In other words, that's the short-term fulfillment, but there is a far future fulfillment that will unfold as well. We're sort of sitting and waiting and anticipating. Now, if you ask the question we suggested you might ask earlier, how much does Moses, for instance, understand the Christ who was to come? How much does he know of Jesus who was to come? How much does Abraham understand? There is the birth of this expectation that someone was coming To resolve our most pressing need, the problem of sin, even from the very foundations of humanity. You will give birth to a son. The serpent will be cursed. The son will crush the serpent's head. But the serpent will strike his heel. Even from Genesis chapter 3, there are these flickers of expectation that someone was coming to reverse the curse of the garden. If you don't believe that's the firm expectation coming away from Genesis chapter 3, note that in Genesis chapter 4, when Adam and Eve conceive and she bears a son, they name him Cain, which means I got me a man child. It is as though the expectation for Adam and Eve is that already with immediacy God has moved. This son will be the son that provides for us an answer to what now plagues us, the problem of sin. Even from Genesis 4, there is the expectation that one day a child will be born that will reverse the curse of the garden In our pressing problem of sin. Moving into the ministry of Moses, there is the expectation that Israel needs a king. You may not have realized that, given the fact that many hundreds of years would pass before Israel had a king, but Moses sets out in Deuteronomy 7 the direct need for a king in Israel, but not just any king, a king who would elevate the needs of his people even over his own self-interest period of the judges helps to sort through the tribes of Israel, trying to ascertain which of those tribes was most suited to provide for the people the kind of king they so desperately need. If you follow closely the story of the judges, by the time we come to the conclusion of that book, Benjamin as a tribe has been excluded, and the 10 tribes of the northern territory were never really an option in the first place. That leaves but one tribe, the tribe of judah first and second samuel tell the story of the failed leadership of saul one of the tribe of benjamin and the successes of david a man after god's own heart second samuel 7 tells the story of god binding himself to the household of david in a covenant forever one in the lineage of david will sit upon the throne of israel and that passage represents a great advancement in Old Testament understanding with regards to what to expect of a Messiah, a Christ, who would come. At this point in Israel's history, there is the well-understood idea that what we need is a son of David. And although there are indicators as to the nature of this son of David, Isaiah chapter 9 is the first time we have a fully formed expression that details for us that not only do we need one in the lineage of David, not only do we need a son of David, what we need in reality is the son of God. They're reading along in Isaiah and they're coming to terms with the expectation that one must be born in the lineage of David. And then you come to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Now we need a son to be born as a testament to the truthfulness of God, that he will do what he said he would do, and maher shalal hashbaz is born. Okay, there's an exhale. But then Isaiah says these children are signs and wonders. There's the subtle implication here that the birth of that child is foreshadowing something greater, which is to come. We are at the edge of our seats Come to Isaiah 9. The Bible says there again, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when the Assyrians ransacked the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future times, he'll bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of the east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light A light is dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Ahaz, Judah will be for a time protected. But there will be a time when even the most vulnerable of tribal territories in all of Israel will see the great light of the gospel. Verse 3 says, you've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils the the geographical boundaries of israel are being exploded the geographical boundaries of israel are no longer relevant with regards to defining the people of god upon the birth the death and resurrection of jesus christ In verse 4 the bible says for you've shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now this is fairly typical prophetic speech. And maybe an Israelite hearing the prophecy of Isaiah for the first time is just sort of going through the humdrum of receiving a prophetic word. They're rejoicing in their hearts at this promise from God that he will provide for their protection, that even the most vulnerable tribal territories of Israel will be protected under the sovereign hand of God. But remember, at this point, the expectation is a son of David who will intervene militarily and politically to provide for the needs of his people. But In verse 6, a bombshell is dropped. The Bible says a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We don't just need a son of David. What we need is the Son of God. It becomes crystal clear in a single verse that what God intends to do is to intervene in human history by personal involvement. That Jesus would step out of the glories of heaven, robe himself in flesh, dwell in our midst, and do for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. He is Wonderful counselor. And all of Israel must have nodded in agreement, yes, and amen. We've heard that before. That's a good word. Thank you, Isaiah. Furthermore, he will be called mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And their hair must have stood on end. God intends himself to step into human history to intervene on our behalf, to do not only what we couldn't do for ourselves, but to do what the lineage of David could not do for us, to do indeed what the entire nation of Israel could not perform, that the righteous requirement of God's law might be fulfilled in absolute perfection, that our sin might be atoned for, that the penalty for our sin might be paid and even at the laying down of his very life he would resume it again that all authority in heaven and on earth might be seized eternally by the Lord Jesus Christ this is how God intends to move with precise detail we have the very nature of the Messiah described this is not just a son of David this is indeed the son of God this is the very issue the perplexing issue that Jesus sets before those Pharisees when they approach him and seek to entangle him in some theological dispute, he asks of them, how is it that David says, I will say to my Lord, or my Lord will reign until he's put his enemies under his footstool. How can it be that David would say to one of his sons, my Lord? The Pharisees just can't reckon with the reality of what God says intends to do. I suspect that if you were a first century Jew, and you were sitting around in a synagogue Sunday school class, and you were trying to engage in controversial theological conversation, if you were discussing the speaking in tongues, or the Calvinism, or the predestination issue of first century Jews, this would have been your source text. How will God Do what is described in that passage. And what are the various theories with regards to how God will pull this off? How in the world can one marked by sin in the lineage of David be referred to as wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace? We find the answer to such a conundrum the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, when Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, there is more than just the superficial being communicated there. All of the truth and the substance of Isaiah chapter 7 through 12 are being imported into Matthew chapter 1, a celebration not only that Jesus is the yes and amen to the promise of God, the affirmation that yes, Jesus was born divinely conceived of a virgin. Yes, Jesus represents God's presence with us, as we learned last week, he is God's temple in our midst, the testament to God's nearness to us. Jesus is our amen. It is furthermore the affirmation that what we have here is not just one born according to the lineage of David. What we have in the birth of the Christ child is the clothing of the very Son of God that he might dwell in our midst, reversing the curse of the garden and resolving our most demanding issue, the problem of sin. It is a shame. It is a shame and a testament to the callousness of our hearts when we are not moved by the story of Christmas and the lengths to which God has gone to resolve on our behalf the problem of our sin. Jesus has invaded human history. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Jesus came to bear the penalty for our sin, to undo what we have so dreadfully done over the course of our life. We talk of the forgiveness of God, so freely as though it were arbitrary, as though God gave it away flippantly. God has never looked at a single sin and just decided by fiat to disregard the seriousness of that sin. God has never granted forgiveness without cost. God has never just decided to forget what we've done in the past, to allow that that be outbalanced by some good deed we've done in the present. The full measure, the full price, the full penalty for your sin and my sin must be paid. God would arrange for the payment by the sending of his only son, Jesus. Can you imagine the humility of stepping out of the glory of heaven and into all of the indignities of infancy? as a child. Can you envision such a thing? Christ making himself subject to the authority of an earthly mother and father, governing officials. You ever ever been in a conversation with someone and it just became clear to you that, that while they were operating somewhere right around here, you were operating somewhere right around here And and humility demands that you not acknowledge that in any external way, but there is in your heart, in places you don't like to talk about, a certain degree of frustration with the fact that you're operating with people who are running down here while you are operating at a level somewhere up here. Usually we express that more comfortably outside of church settings and we just acknowledge that we hate to deal with foolish people. Can you imagine the humility involved of stepping out of heaven with infinite knowledge and insight and interacting with the kinds of limitations that you and I live with on a constant basis? God has intervened in human history in order to reverse the curse of the garden and to do what we simply could not do ourselves that dear friend is the message of christmas verse 7 the bible says the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end he will reign on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever the zeal of the lord of hosts will accomplish this that final statement the zeal of the Lord of Hosts will accomplish this. It is that God would move with dogged determination to bring this to pass. There would be no rock left unturned. There would be no mountain he would not move. Even at the demand to step out of heaven, to finally take and do on our behalf what we'd fumbled around with for so long, God would effectively do in the sending of His only Son. Aren't you glad for this? And and I, I wonder, even in this room, but certainly abroad, across the street, and around the world as we say, how many there are who are groping in darkness, celebrating the Christmas season, yet, still yet, to see the light of the gospel. The message of Christmas is the story of how God intervened in human history, that you and I might have the forgiveness of our sin. Not because God gives salvation, forgiveness of sin, out like Santa Claus. There's a naughty and a nice list, and if you just do better, surely you'll curry favor with God. No, coming to faith in Jesus is coming to terms with our depravity, our brokenness, our sin. Acknowledging that, asking that through the blood of Jesus we might receive forgiveness full and free. The characteristic trait of the Christian life is not perfection. It never has been. And until we're glorified with Jesus in heaven, it, it won't be characteristic trait of the christian is repentance acknowledging that we ha- identify yourself with israel this understanding that we are broken something must be done to fix us recognize this christmas che- season that the birth of this child is the evidence of god's activity in history that what is broken in us stands to be rectified eternally and perfectly through the finished work of Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. God, I I pray that our our collective confession would be a, a deep and abiding need, one we cannot meet in our own power, in our own strength, but one that you've met in perfection through the sending of your Son. God, I I pray, Lord, that you would create in our heart a longing that only Jesus can meet. God, God, I I pray that you would move our hearts to long for and to love your son, Jesus. To celebrate, not just in the externals of giving and getting gifts and the singing of certain songs and all of the trappings of the holiday, God, but in our very heart of hearts to to move us, God at the simple thought of, of what you've done. Lord, we could not come to you, but you have come to us. God, I pray that you would do the miracle of resurrection even in the next moments as you bring in, into the hearts and minds of, of these gathered, Lord, the truth of the Christmas message. I pray, God, that you would stir us to faith and repentance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The message of the gospel, the essence of of